Welcome to the Autistic Mystic. My name is Jeff. I am the Autistic Mystic, and we have a wonderful show for you today. But first, I want to apologize for being away for so long. And I want to apologize to L. Dowd, my guest for today's episode, and Brooke Scott, whose episode will be coming out next week. I have been sitting on these audios for so long. We recorded these back in July, I think, and I'm only now putting them out in October. Um, life got really crazy for me. Uh, my kids went through kind of like a, a mental growth spurt and we had to push back their bedtime because they were no longer falling asleep at the normal time and they needed to be engaged with for longer during the day. Otherwise they were just not falling asleep for like a long time after we had put them in bed, <coughs> which meant that I had even less time to record audio and edit audio. And we were also bringing in new staff members at the church and trying to control, uh, uh, trying to deal with a global pandemic and trying to control my autistic fixation, which had me just all over the place. Uh, but we are a little more stable now. Um, the kids are back in school, thank God. And we now, I now have two weeks of mornings per month to myself that I can work on church stuff and podcast stuff. Anyway, let's get into things. As I said before, my guest today is Elle Dowd. She is a pastor, a social justice advocate, a PhD student, and now a published author. And she was gracious enough to sit down with me to discuss the themes in her book, Baptized in Tear Gas, which you can buy at any bookstore right now. Uh, So sit back, relax, grab your noise-canceling headphones, and get ready for this week's info dump. Here's Baptized in Tear Gas with Elle Dowd. Stim when you worship, tick when you pray. Okay, well, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Autistic Mystic Podcast. My name is Jeff. I am joined today by L. Freaking Dowd, uh, which I'm so excited about. Um, I have been a fan of yours for a long time. I was so excited when you uh, volunteered to to be a guest on the show. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about your book, which has... um, one of the greatest names of a book I think ever is it was one of those names where I, when I saw your book I was like baptized in tear gas I wish yeah. I thought of that but I've never been tear gas so it wouldn't make sense if I wrote a book <laughs> called that um, but, but it's like it's like such a good title for a book yeah. and I'm very excited to read it when it comes out yeah thank um, you yeah. yeah my typically so that was like my working title like that was like my title when I was like even like pitched the book or whatever right. talked to the publisher and, you know, everyone was like, don't get attached to your title. They never let you keep your title. <laughs> da, da, da. And then they literally let me keep, they literally let me keep it. And I was like, cool. So I felt excited about that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a great title. Um, and it like, it's very descriptive. It kind of gives you an immediate feel of what the book is going to be about. Um, yeah. Provocative as well. Uh, it's everything a title needs to be. It's, it hooks you before you even open the book. So yeah. That's great. Yeah, uh, I have one of my copies here. Oh, there you go. Like Look at that. Backwards for you all, but this no. Is well, oh, I'm looking at it on the Zoom. Yeah, it's backwards on the TikTok. On the yeah. Zoom, it's, it's right side up. Yeah. Here, guys. <laughs> and Tracy Blackman is much cooler than me, and, and she wrote the forward, so that's fine. Oh, too. nice. Yeah. Very cool. I don't know how anyone could be much cooler than you, but. Oh, um, um so tell me a little bit uh let's let's start with your book actually like um what what was the the impetus to to you writing uh to you starting to write a book and uh what what led you to to this point yeah so I had had some acquisition editors just like throughout the years just reach out I think because I'm a bitch on social media so people are like (laughs) wow that's a mouthy lady she probably has something to say And so, um, you know, they were like, do you want to write a book? And I'm like, literally about what, who cares? Nobody cares. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then I was, uh, I was, uh, working at a congregation in, in Chicago, St. Luke's Lutheran church in Logan square. And they're a congregation that really as part of their core identity, uh, really cares about like public witness and community organizing and all that stuff. And I realized throughout the year that I was there that I kept having, I, I kept writing these sermons that were like about stuff that I saw and experienced in Ferguson. So the book is about the Ferguson uprising um, and my experience in the Ferguson uprising. And so I kept, I I kept like seeing these, you know, 
kind of like sermon vignettes that were like around Ferguson. And I was like, oh, maybe like, maybe this would be a thing. And I literally just like really sketchily copy and pasted like, I don't know, five paragraphs to Lisa who would become my editor. And I was like, well, is this a book? Like on a plane ride in January. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it was like April and I was signing a contract. And then I was like, you know, very afraid because then that, that meant I had to write a book now. So, um, (laughs) but yeah, the book is about, it, the the subtitle is uh, from white moderate to abolitionist, mm. and it's really about how you know I grew up in Urbandale, Iowa, which is a suburb of Des Moines, which is very like upper Midwestern, very like white, very suburbs, you know. And so I really was formed in a particular way there, like many of us are who live in those sort of places. And, and we really talked about racism, for example, like it was the thing of the past. Right. And if we did talk about racism, we talked about it very much like it was an issue of individual people, like individual boogeymen, like the Klan right. or something. Yeah. Um, and not about like systemic injustice. And I had really internalized a lot of, of basically white supremacist ideas, right? And mm-hmm. so- and not like the overt ones, right? But the ones that are more like, oh, I agree with your message, but you have to block the street and right. you have to be so disruptive. And so, you know, uh, the subtitle from white moderate to abolitionist is this reference to, I'm sure you caught it, to MLK's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail where mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's responding to these white pastors that like wrote him a letter that was basically like, listen, we agree, but could you turn it down a notch? And, <laughs> and he wrote back, and one of the things that he said was that the greatest obstacles to, to you know, racial justice was not actually the Ku Klux Klan and those folks. It was the, the white moderate that cared more about, you know, defining the peace. status quo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, that's really who I was. And becoming a mother of black children was a big part of of my transformation. And then being there in the Ferguson uprising on the streets. Um, experiencing the the state violence for myself, seeing it for myself, uh, really transformed me and I became an abolitionist, but Mm. it wasn't like a, an easy road, right? Like I kept bumping up against all these assumptions. And so the reason it's called baptized in tear gas is because in my tradition, uh, we talk about baptism as like a a daily dying and rising. Mm. And so the idea is that there's all these things in me that had to die for something new to be born. Right. Like yeah. I had to die to my, you know, tone policing and expectation of civility and worship of white niceness and all of these things um, in order for, for these relationships and for like a new way of, in, of interacting with scripture and, and really um, like a real hope for our collective liberation. All, all the things to be had to be born in me, but they couldn't be born in me until these other things had died. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a beautiful metaphor um and and more than a metaphor like yeah uh hundred uh, percent and it kind of ties in like um like i've gone i've gone on on i mean i think anyone um if you come around on on these issues to be an abolitionist and to be anti-racist and be anti-homophobic you do have to like have these things confronted in you um and yeah. even like from there's so much like for people who it affects directly like uh, I'm a person of, of, of immense privilege in our society because I'm uh, male presenting and white and like, uh, and, but like, um, I'm also neurodiverse and uh, queer. And so like, and I had to, I had keep running up against these things where I have all this like internalized homophobia and internalized uh, uh, neuro, uh, neuro, I don't know what to what to call like it ableism um, right? yeah ableism thank like, you yeah yeah yeah, yeah internalized yeah. ableism and like and having to really like reassess those things in me um and and that's like that's on things that directly affect me so it's like yeah. it is so much more difficult to sort of like call yourself into question um when when it doesn't directly affect you and really like the value in shutting up right. <laughs> and just listening to people right um and like and just like being like okay like and i feel like for people who don't want to see the systemic side of it um there's this like assumption that people are trying to pull one over on you or something like that Mm -hmm. and and you're just kind of like what 
what what what's there to gain from right. from lying about this like yeah but there's everything to gain from like from standing up for it and uh and, and fighting against it so yeah i actually think it's kind of in some spaces or in some ways it's harder when we're the sort of people whose identities encompass both um you know moments where we've experienced oppression and also moments where we're part of the dominant culture so mm-hmm. you know for you um as like a neurodiverse person um and like but also being white right and like for me um being like a woman being bisexual i mean all these different identities right where we have like really experienced oppression uh and yet like we're still white like we are still white and that is like it is the thing you know yeah. and so i think something that i've that i've really noticed is that there's this scarcity narrative that happens um towards with those of us who have in some times been in these roles where we've we have experienced oppression mm-hmm. where we're kind of like we have this trauma and somehow if we acknowledge that we could possibly be privileged and maybe even being participating in this sort of traumatization or worse for other people right it's like we don't want to we don't want to believe it and it's like we're almost like holding on to that as if there's not like enough liberation for everyone right right so, yeah yeah it's not a, it's not a cake <laughs> like, right right there's enough like for if we give us. it if we give a slice to that person no yeah it's uh yeah 100 and like in uh in canada right now especially like uh you probably heard about our our latest national shame of the uh uh 215 indigenous children found under the residential school um and like um that's not taught to us at all in school like like sort of what you were saying uh earlier about growing up um just completely closed off from the actual issues um but like it's also not a secret like we had uh truth and reconciliation commission a few years ago where the canadian courts ruled that canada committed genocide against and continues to commit genocide against the indigenous peoples and then like last week in parliament somebody brought up a motion to acknowledge the genocide on the government's level and it got voted down and uh, because it's unparliamentary and i'm like it's it's been proven in court like i don't know like i don't know what you're hoping to gain from not acknowledging it um and but people are like like the there's a sentiment among white moderates and they're like oh they're being really annoyed like that was a long time ago people should get over it and i'm like the last school closed in 1996 yeah like I was in middle school when the last residential school closed. Yeah. That is not a long time ago. So yeah. this isn't something that happened in like the 1800s. Um, this is something that happened to people alive now and their grandparents and their parents. And like, and even if it had happened in the 1800s, like there's still people who would be alive today whose grandparents had been affected, right? Like it's still, right. it still immediately affects people in society. Um, and and it's it's but yeah it's that it's that we don't want this to make a lot of noise it's making me uncomfortable and yeah. it's kind of like well if it's making you uncomfortable we need to make sure it stops happening <laughs> like yeah, but that it's, was, it's still that's like um so the the book itself is organized like around themes right more like mm-hmm. lessons i learned it's less of a like book where it's like here's chronologically my life right like right. there's kind of some memoir moments, tons of theological reflection. Some parts I say is like a, you know, maybe like a, like a warning to other white people to like not do all the mess up things that I did <laughs> as I was learning and definitely right. part like love letter to like my comrades and people in the movement. But um, yeah, the book's not like this chronological, this is the Ferguson uprising, everything that happened or even everything that happened in my story, it's really written around and gather around themes. And one of the themes, I think it's chapter three, uh, is titled tension mm. and the, it, it reflects a little bit on the idea that like we as white people have really been taught that discomfort or inconvenience is like tantamount, tantamount to violence against us. And so right. anytime that we feel discomfort or we feel tension, we try to avoid it. We try to push back against it. But the reality is that tension is part of all transformation. Tension is part of growth and that yeah. tension can definitely be um, a gift, right? It can, 
it can really move us forward. We can't move forward without tension and tension can be a tool that moves us forward. And so part of any kind of justice work, but particularly for white people is to like notice that tension and then like, like move towards it instead of against it. And that's something, you know, I definitely learned from the Ferguson uprising, but it's something that I continue to have to learn every day because I hate tension. Like who, who likes that, right? Like who no, likes yeah, conflict? Exactly. Like, no, yeah. no. So I have to actively like still remind myself of that. And that's something I'm still working on. Yeah. Well, and like, even if you think about like, uh, if you, if you center an analogy in, in the body, like to build muscle, you are essentially <laughs> ripping holes in your existing muscle and then the body heals it stronger. And so like, if we don't have something ripping at us, we can't get better. Uh, and so it, the, the tension, like we have to let it allow it to, to tear at us mm-hmm. and damage us so that we can become part of the healing process and, and not an impediment to the healing process. And something that was really important for me to learn is um, I think I kind of thought, you know, I sort of always thought protest is good, but that there was a right way to protest. And of course the right, right. way is the way that's like really nice. <laughs> like um, I remember when I was first in Ferguson, this is like so embarrassing, but um, you know, people are standing in the street and the police are like, you can't stand in the street. And um, I was like, I really felt like it was violent for people to not like obey the police and, and right. stand in the street. Like that felt, it was so tense. It felt, it felt violent to me, even though there's nothing violent about standing in the street. Right. And the cops were the ones who had blocked it off. Right. But just, I'd been really socialized to, um, yeah, just like obey authority and, and to mm-hmm. think of that as a real authority. And so it really felt like to me that direct action or civil disobedience was creating tension right. when actually what direct action does is it redistributes tension that's already there. Like yes. white supremacy causes tension and the mm-hmm. tension is born by people of color, by BIPOC people. And so this isn't like creating some tension. In fact, this tension is there and it's like poison and it's killing people. What direct action does is it redistributes the tension that's already there back to the place where it belongs, which is at the source and the cause of the tension. Right. Um, so those of us who just like don't normally feel tense about white supremacy, we're like, whoa, you're, you're causing this problem. You're creating this tension. Nope that tension was there. It's yeah. just that I had the privilege of ignoring it. And that's yeah. something. Yeah. 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 They just turned on the light. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. yeah. Um, was, was Ferguson like the, the first, um, your first dive into social justice work or, or had you been sort of getting your feet wet before that? I had been, um, so before Ferguson, I think there was always something in me, and it's, it's probably in most people, right? Where like, I felt um, I cared a lot about the things going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had even been to some protests, right? Like I had been to some actions, I'd been to some protests. I had been to, I'd been part of kind of like, you know, micro rebellions as like a, even as a middle school student against things like right. the dress code and stuff, right? Which I do think is an, is an issue of, of justice, right? On a totally different level, but it's an issue of justice because dress codes are always informed by patriarchy and heteronormativity and white supremacy and classism and all this stuff. But like, these were more just like smatterings of things throughout my life. And again, Mm -hmm. I I really felt like it was more of, I I really thought of justice work kind of as like a thought experiment, like something abstract, something like, Oh, it's morally good to do this. So we should do this. It wasn't something that I was a part of, like in a way that was really embodied. And so Mm -hmm. I'd been to some protests, la la la. Okay. But um, the Ferguson uprising was the first time that I really felt that I was baptized into a movement. Like I was part of a community. We were accountable to one another. We were like, we've been through this together. Although definitely like, even though, you know, there, there were times that I would like, I was beaten by the police or like experienced the tear gas or, or whatever Mm -hmm. sound cannons um, in every single situation, like the, black teenager next to me or black young adult next to me was getting it so much worse. Right. Right. So, um, it, it really felt different. Like I had, you know, I would say like, probably, you know, when I was working at like Lutheran church camp in like 2008, like they probably, I mean, I know they thought of me as like the rebel then. Right. But it was more like ideological or something right? and less about deep relationships and moving strategically to dismantle a system. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I hear that uh, right down to the church camp. <laughs> like uh, it was that was sort of my first pastoral gig was uh, being the chaplain at a summer camp, yeah. uh, and then got to move into youth ministry next, uh, and um, it was um, again, yeah, something that that kind of got me in trouble as I started moving away from just being like the punk rock pastor guy to like actually being like um there's people in this congregation who have watches that are worth more than what a lot of people make in a year and they're starving people in the city so let's uh sell all your watches and go feed those people (laughs) like like uh it's when you start to make people start feeling uncomfortable there's a lot of pushback um but but again yeah the tension like that's Mm -hmm. that's that's how any person organization movement grows is is in that tension and and being able to bring that forward um yeah so uh, what um were you in in ferguson in like a a clergy role or like were you were you collared up and (laughs) so i i wasn't wearing a collar then um in the elca you wear a collar once you're entranced into our like ordination process it's like a whole thing. I mean, I, I, all the different traditions have like different ways of doing it. Right. So it's kind mm-hmm. of confusing, like the collar in one place can mean something different than the collar somewhere else. But I was in a pastoral role, although I wasn't a pastor. So my role okay. was that I was working for the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri in the Bishop's office. Okay. And I was uh, the youth missioner. And when okay, they hired cool. <laughs> me, there was no job description. So none of us were like really knew what a youth missioner was. Uh, so we're kind of like, joked about building the plane as we're flying it kind of thing. But one thing was that I really noticed that I was not the diocesan youth director or the youth mm. coordinator as youth missioner. And so what that meant to me was that I was really responsible for the spiritual care or the well-being or the, you know, abundant life mm-hmm. of young people in my region, not just young people in the pews who'd be in the pews of our churches. And so right. Uh, I had only had that job for a few months before Michael Brown was killed. Michael Brown uh, was murdered by white police officer, Darren Wilson. Mm -hmm. And like one of our churches was in Ferguson and like, there are people who went to school with him. And um, so to me, like, and, and, you know, missioner is about being like, where are the people? It's about being in mission. It's about being in relationship with the people and I was the missioner for young people. Where were the young people? They were in the streets. They were in the streets. And so I just really felt a responsibility to be, to be out there. And so mm. I kind of ended up, uh, you know, again, like I didn't know what I was doing and I made a lot of mistakes, but I ended up sort of in a kind of like street chaplain role where I was like spiritually supporting a lot of people out on the street. But I also was doing a lot of connecting work where I was helping to bring protesters or the voice of protesters and activists into our churches and trying to get some of the folks in our churches out into the street as well. And, um, you know, protesting state violence is still very controversial, but I will say that I feel a lot less alone now than I Mm. did in 2014. Like it was very, very, very tense. It was very, very hard. Um, and I, I'm not at all trying to downplay like how tense it is now. Uh, but I, I will say that like, you know, as for example, like the uprisings in Baltimore happened, or we all witnessed the murder um, of Walter Scott or some of these other high profile cases and people started making connections. Um, and it shouldn't have taken the blood of those people for us to be paying attention. Right. But there, there seemed to be like, instead of just like Ferguson being this like city that's always on fire, which was not what was happening, but you know, right that's how it's portrayed yeah oh yeah they're they like to play the the one video of the the car on burning on and you just think like the whole city is on fire it's like well that's not what when you get that car from like five different angles and it looks like five different cars my favorite yep (laughs) and my favorite thing was when the police shot a tear gas canister into a bush and the bush caught on fire and it was like oh rioters right set the bush on fire and it's like there's literally you can see the the tear gas canister at the at the base right. of the bush, right um and there were some there were some really great reporters and journalists who noted that but of course the images that get spread are are 
the ones right. where it's you know right a certain narrative well and you we saw a lot of that with the um um uh floyd um oh why can't I... this george is awful floyd george floyd thank you yeah. yeah thank you george floyd protests and like yeah. off-duty cops and and non-protesters coming in and wrecking shit up and then it getting reported as like but like it was such a stark contrast too like to watch it unfold on twitter um like like the live stream with the live streams and like and there's a few reporters that like i know uh do really good work and that i trust who are in the area uh like robert evans uh who does the behind the bastards podcast like Mm -hmm. is a former war correspondent um and like has like covered different civil wars around the world and is like reporting in uh in the middle of that and like showing what's actually happening and then watching what's on the news and it's just like two completely different stories and like i'd go to where i i i'm bivocational so i go to work at my non-church job Mm -hmm. and people be like oh aren't those protesters awful and i'm like yeah are we how are we how are we talking about the same events like Yeah. Like it's yeah two completely yeah. different narratives yep i also feel pretty strongly so there's definitely like we 100 percent witnessed undercover cops and you know basically counterintelligence programs that right. came to stir up trouble for sure that happened and i'll also say like there were like also people who did destroy property and right. at the time i really um especially at first was very like upset by that Mm -hmm. Um, and then I started to question why we call smashing windows violent, uh, but we don't, for example, incarcerate people for people in power for denying us healthcare or education or things that are actually killing people. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, and of course, again, this is not my, this is not my analysis. This is things that were, were graciously taught to me very much more patiently than I deserved. Um, but yeah, there was definitely, I, I first, was really upset by like the looting. I started feeling, I felt like it was making our, undermining our movement and our message. And I was just really upset about it. And now I think the few moments that I did notice of property destruction, I think of in a totally different way. I think of it as traumatized people acting out. I think of it as self-defense. I think of it as stolen people on stolen land, redistributing wealth. Right. There's been a lot of looting. Uh, For example, you know, I now live in Chicago. There's been looting uh, by, I don't know, LaSalle Street, which like makes all this money and doesn't invest back into the south and west sides. Right. right? So like I started to see that not only is it like understandable that people would destroy property and that sometimes it was emotional and sometimes it was strategic, but actually that it was a moment of liberation because marginalized people deciding what happens to capital is important for liberation that is a hundred percent yeah yeah and i didn't mean to downplay that but like it's it's uh like if you research the history of policing in both canada and the u.s um it has always been about um protecting the property of the wealthy and it's never been about protecting the public it's been about protecting the property of the wealthy yeah um down to catching slaves or catching indigenous people up in Canada. Right. Um, like Repressing our, our, unions. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our first, our first uh, police force, the RCMP, uh, which like had the best PR in the world for so long. Cause you, th- you, you think of a Mountie and you think of like the, the Dudley do right, whatever, like the, yeah. <laughs> the guy in the red suit yeah. with the nice hat riding yeah. on a horse, doing good deeds. And in actuality, they were the ones um kidnapping indigenous children and putting them in residential schools and um still have like just like so many horrible cover-ups to this day in canada where they're like covering up abuse and assault and like it's it's a terrible organization but it's always from the beginning been about property whether that property is uh whether people view that property as being other people or or actual like land or buildings or anything else yeah it's yeah it's yeah. Um, do you and find, did, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I didn't actually feel like I didn't feel like you were downplaying that. Okay. At all. I think it's more like I was trying to share, like, or I want to share, like, I just feel like there's so many layers to it. Right. It's right. like, yes, there's undercover cops who are like breaking stuff and like riling people up in order to 
justify the state violence against protesters that would you know be the result like that's true mm-hmm. and like there's some you know there's less media coverage of all the times where protesters were cleaning up the streets or helping to raise right. money to rebuild you know places in the community and it's also true that sometimes property was destroyed out of very justifiable rage and it's also true Right. That this can be a form of self-defense because this is literally a genocide that we're witnessing. And it can also be true that uh, looting is really just redistributing wealth when uh, we're talking about, you know, people who who were stolen and on, are on stolen land. So yeah. I guess like, yeah, I wasn't trying at all to be like, I, I think it's like to me at least or for me, it's like I keep being introduced to these layers of analysis and all of these things are really true. And I think different things resonate with me at at different times. Yeah. A hundred percent. Do you find um, that you are pressured a lot as a clergy person to work with the police? Uh, Like one of the, one of the criticisms I get is that I'm very critical of the police and and people are like, we should be building community with them. And I'm like, you can't build communities with the oppressors. Like, like, Yeah. Um, Yeah. Is that a pressure you find in in your role? I definitely um, experienced that early on. Right. I think they've given up on trying to make me do that. But um, (laughs) and I and I kind of like I kind of got it right, because I was definitely like a neoliberal who was like, listen to all sides and try to, you know, all these things. Um, But, you know, like we did some of that and it and it and it doesn't work. It's not effective. And once I got some power analysis, I was like, one thing that happened was I hosted an event where um, it was a diocesan-wide event, and this this diocese had, you know, youth in the white suburbs, white western suburbs, yeah, and then multicultural churches in the city, historically black churches, you know, in the north, like all these different like experiences, and because of segregation in the city, people's lives there was also churches like on the Arkansas border. And so like all these churches, all these youth had such different experiences. So I hosted an event uh, where folks got together, young people, high schoolers, and and we came to Ferguson and there was like a panel of black activists and we did some media analysis and we did some stuff like that. And I got some pushback from the parents of like, oh, if you're going to have these black activists there, why don't you have police there to tell their side of the story? And I said, you can read their side of the story in the newspaper at any time because the press often not all press but much of the press takes their press release and reports it as fact and so you can read the police perspective and even more than that i'm not going to put people uh i'm not going to put people who are abused with their room with their unrepentant abuser i will say i think sometimes we white folks particularly like progressives or or even leftists, we like to, uh, it's like fashionable to hate the police. And I don't mean like we shouldn't criticize the police. What I, what I say about this is sometimes we try to be like, fuck the police, which I think can be a very prophetic and important perspective, particularly when it comes from oppressed people, right? right. Um, but for white people who aren't typically experiencing that oppression from the police, sometimes we kind of like, grab on that onto that as a way to distance ourselves from the police to say like, Oh, we're not those bad white people. Like the cops, we're like the good white people. And really that still is centering whiteness in a way that's like really unhelpful and and not good. And and doesn't recognize that we're um, all part of the system. All white people are part of the system and benefit from the system. And so one thing I will say is that I'm actually, uh, I would love to work with the police. And why I say that is uh, my spouse used to be in the military And now he organizes with an organization called Veterans for Peace. And the point Mm. of Veterans for Peace is to end U.S. militarism and imperialism by Mm. having veterans tell the story of the true human cost of war. Mm. So um, what I would say is, I don't know if anyone has read the piece uh, on media, which is Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. But I would love to work with those folks, the folks who have left, who are trying to leave, who are trying to deal with the ways that they were complicit and participated in a system that has caused so much harm. I would love to, I think that all people are deserving of spiritual care and support. And I would love to support people who would like to leave that system or are leaving as they 
figure out how they can repair the harm that was done and what their role is going forward. And so um, that's the way I would like to work with the police is I think it would be really great if we I think- had like yeah. police against militarism or police for abolitionists. Yeah, I think I think that's such an important point. And like, um, like, t- to make it all about me again. No, uh, <laughs> like, anyway. like, like, that's sort of my attitude is is having been uh, a closeted queer person, complicit in the church system for so long, coming out yeah. of a non-affirming denomination. Um, I, if I'm going to take up any space in the queer community. I need to be working extra hard to undo the damages of the church. Um, And so very much like what you're saying, like, like, yeah, like, um, yeah, everyone is deserving of, of grace and mercy and, and uh, spiritual care. uh, But, but we need to actually like see that work of undoing and we need to, we need to be participating in the undoing of the corrupt systems that we were complicit in. Um, And, and that includes not just cops, um, but like you're saying, like all white people and, um, and we need to be prepared to feel bad about stuff. Like, okay. like I think a lot of times, um, leftists and liberals, um, were like, well, we're, we're, we're out here, we're, we're doing the stuff, but like, there's still like, like, yeah. I think white guilt is a very effective tool that we need to embrace because we are still complicit in it. And like, it it does like and it's not it's not my fault that i get everything handed to me on a silver platter but it still happens <laughs> right so like a responsibility right yeah like, yeah yeah i think like i really um i actually think it's a very like i'm an abolitionist right and hmm. and um one of the things i love about abolition is that especially with an emphasis on transformative and restorative justice it's the idea that no one is ever too far gone and there's always a way back. And what mm-hmm. that looks like is going to be different, right? Like right. it's not up to me, particularly as a white person to decide for people who have been complicit or active in these various systems, like what it looks like for them to have a way back. Like that's right. for the people who they were, who harmed them um, yeah. to say, or to like, you know, decide what kind of relationship or engagement will happen at all. But what I will say is that as an abolitionist, I believe we don't throw anyone away, but part of not throwing anyone away is believing that everyone is capable of transformation and Mm -hmm. accountability is so key to that. And so that feeling of like guilt or like conviction of like being a part of something messed up is like, yeah, that's like, we can listen to that. I think about the apostle Paul, which like you know, problematic fave, complicated character. It's cool. But I think about the apostle Paul who had spent all this time, you know, killing Christians in the early church. And so he didn't one day get to just be like, oops, sorry, that happened. Let's not talk about it again. It makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Like he spent his whole life atoning for that in a self-sacrificial way that was all about building up the church, right? He didn't like the level of accountability was that that was a huge part of his story. Every time he talked about, you know, Jesus or the church, it was like, I was killing Christ's church. That's who I was. I was the worst. I was the literal right. freaking worst. And God transformed me. And therefore God can transform all people because right. like I was the worst one. And so I think like, sometimes we want to pretend like, oh, don't cancel people or like that was in the past. And I think, again, I feel really strongly that we don't throw anyone away. Um, and that part of not throwing anyone away is believing people can change. And so that's why we really need accountability. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, you are also, uh, I remember you you saying something on Facebook the other day about, about going back to school. Uh, are you, are you able to talk about that? Cause you you said some interesting stuff about, about what you're going to be studying that, that got me all excited. Yeah. So I am starting uh, this fall at the Chicago Theological Seminary, and I am studying under Dr. Uh, Joanne Marie Terrell, who's a womanist and, and amazing. And what I'm going to be studying in particular, the work I'm going to be doing is about bisexual theology. So um, I'm bisexual, you know this, I don't <laughs> shut up about it. Um, but the reason that I really would love a bisexual Uh, theology, and there is a little bit of work on this, but really not a lot. And what I've noticed is, and this is a common critique of queer theology and queer biblical interpretation, um, 
and I don't at all, like when I say critique, I don't mean like, I'm not trying to like cast shade because queer theology and queer biblical interpretation, like as it stands has been so liberating for me, has cracked right. open the whole world for me. So this is not me at all. I'm trying to like build on that, right? Like not like tear yeah. it down, right. but so much of what's there really focuses on a very particular part of our community. And usually it's, you know, cisgender gay men right. uh, <laughs> the, the really is like kind of where the, where the conversation tends to go. And there's parts of that that resonate with my experience. And then there's a lot that doesn't. Um, yeah. And similarly with some of the feminist theology out of there, uh, a lot of it, not all of it, there's definitely some queer feminist theology, but a lot of it really seems to um, not also in a way speak to the totality of my experience, right? It speaks to a lot of it. And again, I'm so grateful for it. And so part of my hope is to put some of these things in conversation with one another and say like, okay, let's have like, um, let's have a theology that's for bisexual people. And of course, like my perspective is as a, as a bisexual woman, but in general, and I've done a little bit of work on this so far in my master's, I got my master's of divinity with a biblical studies emphasis at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. And I did like a paper on pastoral care and bisexuality, like the specific risk factors and spiritual needs of bisexual people in particular. Yeah. Because, um, you know, sometimes churches want to be welcome, um, but they think that being welcoming to like a white cis gay dude and being welcoming to me or to like a black trans person are all the right. same. And I was like, that's just not true. We have different experiences. Right. There's so much diversity in our community. So I did some work on, uh, you know, bisexuality and pastoral care, some work on putting bisexuality in conversation with the liturgy. Mm -hmm. and uh with the sacraments and then i've done some bisexual uh biblical interpretation particularly with genesis but some other places too and so my hope is to sort of like build on and expand that work nice that sounds so fascinating and i'm excited to read that stuff too because that's gonna be that's gonna be great yeah i am i'm working on um like uh sort of the same same type of thing is like people want to be like accepting and uh of different of different people and then assuming everyone's going to sort of come with the same um, ex- yeah 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 mm-hmm. and, and so like for like neurodivergent people um i'm kind of like like the just the neurodivergent brain it, like it, it's autism is viewed as a deficit uh because there's a communication barrier between neurotypical people and and neurodivergent people uh, but the barrier is not like it's not a deficit on the side of the autistic people autistic people right. have just their own culture that we we get along just fine with each other yeah. it's just that there's less of us and so when we're trying to integrate into neurotypical society there is a barrier and, and it and it comes off as a deficit so like yeah. just trying to like illustrate like how like if the goal is connection with god um then like while we're praying an autistic person or an adhd person is going to have a lot of trouble um focusing on what you're praying if they're supposed to sit still with their eyes closed so mm-hmm. if we want to be accepting to these people we have to open up some space to have them walk around lie on the floor play with a fidget yeah. toy draw with their eyes open and not have it yeah. be like well that person's not paying attention like mm-hmm. yeah so yeah yeah i think that's really real the um pressure to it's like it, what we're talking about really is like a pressure to assimilate or to culturally yeah. commute right like it shouldn't be on um it shouldn't be only the responsibility totally 100% of autistic people to sort of culturally commute into neurotypical society for the sake of communication. Like neurotypical people need to be able to like also culturally commute and have understanding, right, too. And I think that's true, you know, anytime with like, there's like the dominant culture. Um, I even feel this way, like as a femme, right? Like there's people who are like, I'm okay with women pastors. Maybe I'm okay with queer people queer woman pastor is a lot. That's a step too far. <laughs> and then you wear too much makeup, right? Like there's right. like this, you oh, add these man. like layers, right? And it's like, um, yeah, there's like, or, you know, another, I grew up, um, I grew up blue collar. My dad was a, uh, a mechanic and, and, mm. um, and I grew up in the suburbs that were middle to upper middle class. And so we were like definitely a working class family, especially when I was younger. And I, felt all this pressure my whole life to perform middle-classness. And, and right. um, I didn't obviously growing up have like the class consciousness to like understand what that meant or understand why I felt so uncomfortable or why I felt so out of place. Right. But now, um, you know, I preach at a lot of different churches. And when I preach in working class churches, I'm like, oh, it's just like, it feels like I can breathe. Right. Um, 
and some other places they'll be like, yeah, you almost fit here, but we're not quite sure <laughs> what, like something rubs me the wrong way and you're too direct or too whatever, which I know also something that sometimes autistic or, you know, ADHD or other yeah. folks get told too, right? Like you yeah, communicate too, too directly. Yeah. Um, and I just like, I'm able to perform I learned how to perform middle classness to a certain extent, like pretty well, but then it's mm-hmm. like, you kind of get around me for too long and people are like, you don't, you're not doing it right. Like stop, right. you're too, you're just a little bit too queer. You're a little bit too whatever. You know? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the, it, I, I can mask really well. Look, I didn't get uh, diagnosed with autism until I was in my thirties. Wow. Um, and, uh, it's just cause I, I learned to mask super well. And like yeah. I have facial tics. I had my facial tics all the time because I got mocked when I was a kid for having my facial tics. So like, uh, which is like, whatever, like kids do that. Um, and we're, we're getting to be in a place in society where, where they're learning not to do that as much, uh, which is great. But, um, like, but yeah, like, so I'll, I will pass neurotypical until we've been talking for three hours and then. Uh, I don't have the I don't have the mental energy to keep up the yeah. mask, and then it drops, and people are like, "All right, I'll, I'll see you later," because things got yeah. awkward. But right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, anyway, um, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, um, thank you for allowing me to come, inviting me. My yeah. pleasure. Um, yeah. Your book is called uh, "Baptized in Tear Gas: yes. White Moderate to Abolitionist" uh, yes. by L. Dowd. Uh, when's that coming out? Yeah, the release date is August 10th, which is the day after the seventh anniversary of the murder of Mike mm. Brown, which is on August 9th. Um, but you can pre-order it now and pre-orders are like really important. So you can nice. pre-order it uh, anywhere that you would normally buy books, right? Like if you normally buy books from Barnes and Noble or uh, Target or Blamazon, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but also it's available on IndieBound. There's also, um, there's like the ebook or Kindle, if you're more of like an ebook type of person, an audiobook is coming out. I get to narrate nice. it. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's going to be recorded soon. Um, but if you want like a link to options, my website, ldow.com has a few different options. I obviously, um, you know, I'm not really supposed to push one particular place to order, but I would push IndieBound or your local indie yeah. uh, places if, if you can. And one important thing to note is that, and I can't remember if I said this earlier, probably not. I'm kind of bad about remembering to say this, but all the money that I would make on this book is being redistributed to black activists, liberation Mm. organizations, bail funds, political prisoners, and family members who have lost loved ones to state violence. And that's Mm. not because like El Dow does charity. That's um, because again, none of this is like these are like lessons that were taught to me. And so this is really more like a kind of like reparations moment of making sure that that money Mm. is where it belongs. Like it doesn't, it doesn't belong with me. Right. Like me sharing these stories is more of me um, trying to bear witness to my own transformation and, and hope to accompany other white people along the way as we like are all still learning. Like I'm not obviously an expert, like white people aren't experts in this, but also just (laughs) me, even I'm just definitely not there. Um, and so, yeah, it wouldn't feel right to me. Uh, it wouldn't be right for me to like profit off of black pain or to like right. make money off these lessons that right. I learned from other people. So anyway, the money for this book, uh, ebook, audiobook, print book, um, all are being redistributed. And, uh, there's in the, in the preface, there's a list of some of the places that got my author advance, but I also share about the other people and places on my social media from time to time. Nice. And what is your social media? Just so people can find you. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at my public page at L Dowd, which is so the website would be facebook.com slash L Dowd ministry. And on Tuesday nights there, I do like a, like a Tuesday night prayer gathering thing. Most Tuesday nights at like 8 PM central time. Anyone's welcome. Um, you can also find me on TikTok at L Dowd ministry, and you can find me on Twitter, snap and Insta at how now Brown Dowd before I got She's married. A, my last such name, a good name. <laughs> yeah. My, my last name before I got married was Brown. And now I'm like, Dowd's like Brown. There Dowd. You go. Oh, now Dowd. Brown Dowd. I love yeah. it. So, um, I think that's everything. My website is ldowd.com on my website. There's a calendar where you can see where I'm preaching or speaking. If that's like, nice something people want to do especially like if so much of it's online right now right so yeah cool 
this has been so good and so um informative as well i think like i really think this has been a a very valuable conversation for people to listen to so this is an amazing episode um yeah thank you for creating the space oh my pleasure thank you Yeah. yeah thanks again I will see you on TikTok. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. Have a good night. Yep. You too. Bye. We did it. Congratulations. That is our show for today. Big thanks to Elle Dowd for having this conversation with me. Go buy her book, Baptized in Tear Gas, wherever books are sold. If you want to follow Elle on social media, she is Dowd on Twitter and Instagram and LDowd Ministry on TikTok. You can also find her on her website, LDowd.com. If you want to follow me on social media, you should know I recently changed my social media handles. I want to start incorporating more of my art into social media. So I'm now at Rev Jeff the Artist on TikTok and Instagram, and I'm at Rev Jeff Art on Twitter. If you were following me before on Instagram at CFC underscore Pastor Jeff, you are now following the Chosen Family Church account, which is uh, Chosen Family Church underscore. Uh, if you want to continue to follow my personal account, check out Rev Jeff the Artist. That's on Instagram. And uh, the Autistic Mystic website is currently down, thanks to my autistic executive dysfunction. Uh, But I hope to get that back up and running as soon as possible, at which point you can find it at theautisticmystic.ca, where I compile all of my different projects. You can also follow my church, Chosen Family Church, on Instagram at chosenfamilychurch underscore. And if you want to check out one of our online Zoom services, which we do every other Sunday, you can go to chosenfamilychurch.com and click join a Zoom service, uh, which is a link at the top of the page. As always, I would appreciate it if you rated and reviewed this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to it on and hit the subscribe button. Until next time, remember that you are the divine image of God, the chosen vessel of the Holy Spirit, and the way God interacts with creation, and so are the people you hate. Love ya.